Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Chase Doesn't Know podcast. Thank you very much for downloading this episode and continuing to listen to these episodes. I'm very excited for you to hear this podcast with my new friend, Gerald Huggins. I just recently met Gerald through a mutual friend out at the Baton Rouge airport, and that mutual friend, Mr. Don told me about Gerald, and he sounded like a very fascinating, hardworking, um, self-driven kind of person and kind-hearted and selfless person as well. So I was very excited when Gerald said that he was down to have a little chat on my podcast, uh, and me and Carl went out to the Baton Rouge Airport just this past Saturday when it was freezing cold, uh, and Gerald was kind enough to let us sit in his hangar in front of some pretty sweet airplanes while we recorded this episode. So hopefully very, very soon I will have the video up on YouTube. Thanks to Carl. Appreciate you. Thank you again for downloading this podcast and a massive thanks again to Mr. Gerald Huggins for hanging out with me and being so gracious to share about his life and his uh, career and what he wants to do when he retires. It was great talking to you, Gerald, and I hope you listening enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Gerald Huggins. All right. Well, Gerald, thank you so much for, again, thank you for letting us come out and hang out in your hangar. GH Enterprises. Yes. That's the uh, name of your maintenance company. Yeah. Um, yes. Me and Carl are like uh, kids in a candy store. Carl, especially as, as he's alluded to many times, he's ready to fly. Um, so how many years have you been flying? I started flying um, 1966. Okay. I walked to the uh, walked to the downtown airport out there by Cortana Mall. Right. And uh, I always walked over there looking at airplanes, you know, and I looked across the fence, but never had the uh, courage to actually walk inside, and you know, because there's a fence and a gate right. and they, jump the fence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I finally one day I said, oh, I've got to go in there and ask, see what happens, you know. So yeah. I walked in there and there was a um, an instructor. Uh, just sitting around, I guess, looking for uh, business. <laughs> and um, I said, how about an introductory flight? I said, sure. You got $10? I said, yeah. So I gave him $10, and we went for about 30 minutes. Wow. A brand-new Piper uh, Cherokee airplane, just like that one. Really? Brand new, uh, back there. This one right here. And That's uh, cool. the hook was set then. That's awesome. So that, that was the beginning of it. But How old were you then? I was uh, 16. 16. Yeah. But um, aviation has always been in my blood, basically, you know, because um, I remember uh, my mother tells a story that um, we uh, we went from um, a couple of uh, towns in, in Panama mm -hmm. in a lightweight airplane, you know, like a Cessna 180. Mm -hmm. And she says that um, we landed in... I don't remember any of this, but uh, we landed. She let me out and put me on the ground, and I took off running because <laughs> I was scared. Really? But um, my, um, I guess I was scared, but the, uh, my early, earliest recollection was um, I was in uh, San Jose, Costa Rica, getting ready to go to Guatemala because my, my stepdad was being transferred. Uh, and um, it was like early, early in the morning. had to be men because... Um, I could see the, the taxiway lights on the runway, and I could see the airplane was being serviced outside the um, 
the, the, the big uh, window pane that I was sitting in front of, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, it's a super constellation. Uh, I don't know if you know mm -hmm. what super constellation is, but I mean, it's a, it's a magnificent airplane, at least used to be. And uh, I was saying, I can remember saying to myself, I'm going to be a flight engineer one day. Cool. <laughs> so um, I never forgot it. I always had it in my, in my blood to yeah. do that, you know, so. That's cool. Yeah. Um, I guess we start because, start there, uh, because we met through a mutual friend, Don. And yeah. one of the things that Don told me about when he suggested that I meet you was that, uh, that you weren't born in America and you came to America. Uh, and he, you know, he talks pretty highly of how you came here and learned the language and learned the trade and basically yeah. jumped into what you loved and, and built what you have here. So yeah. what, uh, so tell me where you were born and, uh, some of your early life before you came, I think you were 15, right? When you came yeah. to America. So tell yeah. me a little bit about before you got, uh, came over to America then. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, um, I'll address that, but I'll tell you what, I love Don to death. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's, he's been a dear, dear friend of mine, and um, uh, he's always pushed me up and yeah. elevated me a lot more than I deserve, really, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, he's he's been a great friend, really. Um, but, yeah, man, um, I was born in San Jose, Costa Rica, 1950. Mm -hmm. um, and from there... Um, I mean, I don't have much recollection of until about probably about five, six years of age, you know, and we lived in the banana plantation in Panama uh, where my stepdad worked for United Fruit Company. And uh, from there we were uh, transferred to uh, Guatemala mm -hmm. and uh, we, we spent about six, seven years in Guatemala. Uh, in, in the uh, banana plantations again, okay, you know, yeah. and typically the banana plantations were in the very isolated places, you know, uh, not much civilization there because the work he did was basically um, uh, building the, the the dikes to prevent flooding oh, okay. and drainage canals and yep. irrigation canals, you know, so that was his main deal. So basically when the engineer would lay out a... Um, a plot or or a uh, plantation. Mm -hmm. That was the first part they did, and then they send the uh, people to build the infrastructure. So he was always one of the first guys there. Gotcha. So, so he we always went and, with him. So he would go to a place and do all of that work, and then y'all would go to another location and yeah, do that. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. all those places were pretty primitive, really. You uh -huh. know, because. Uh, we didn't have lights or running water or anything like that. They would bring water in uh, in uh, railroad cars, you know, and oh, wow. we had to pump it into barrels or pump it into water water towers and stuff like that to get water at home. Mm -hmm. And not to mention where the sewage and all that stuff needed to be. Right. Wow. <laughs> so it was pretty crude, really. Um, but it was a good experience. It was a great experience for me because it taught me a lot of, uh, I guess it gave me a lot of values. Uh, mm -hmm. I can appreciate uh, not having anything because right. I kind of grew up in that kind of situation, you know, not having a heck of a lot. But um, uh, how we ended up here, how I ended up, ended yeah. up here in the United States, well, um, I attributed that to my grandmother uh, on my mother's side. Our, um, <clears throat> her dad was a Spanish-American War veteran. Him and his half-brother went down to Costa Rica gold mining uh, right after the uh, Spanish-American War, mm -hmm. 
And apparently they just liked it so much that they stayed down over there, you know. And mm -hmm. my grandmother was born there. Um, but uh, later on, um, the uh, she came back to the States, brought her dad actually to New Orleans uh, to the VA hospital. Mm. And uh, he passed away in uh, 1962 due to cancer. And she never went back, but she's... She brought every one of us here, the, you know, immediate family um, mm -hmm. here to the States. And I came here in 1965. And, um, you know, I've been here pretty much ever since. I mean, I left for a few, almost a year when I was 20 mm -hmm. and then came back and really never left again. But, um, yeah, um, went to... Um, Came here in 19, uh, December, November, something like that, in 1965. Mm -hmm. um, seems like the school's were on vacation, you know. I was fresh out of the sixth grade, five mm -hmm. foot 11, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And um, went to, uh, my grandmother says to me, probably right around the first of the year, she says, we're going to put you in school. Okay. I said, but I don't know English. <laughs> right. <laughs> I said, you're going to learn. <laughs> nice. But uh, took me to Westdale Junior High. Okay. <clears throat> they looked at me and uh, said, mm, you got the body of a ninth grader, so we're going to put you in the ninth grade. Oh, wow. <laughs> and um, I struggled. Really? I struggled trying to assimilate the English and yeah. learn and, and, you know, I mean, Sixth grade in Guatemala is not much of an education, probably, as compared to what right. they were teaching here in, in, at that time, 1965, mm -hmm. 66, you know. So I pretty much uh, struggled all through high school to get, um, to get that done, you know, to mm -hmm. get through high school. Finally, when I graduated in 1970, <clears throat> May 1970, I think it was, <clears throat> excuse me. I was turning 20. <laughs> nice. And uh, I, I figured I needed to graduate because uh, they didn't want a 20-year-old in high school. <laughs> in high school, right? <laughs> <clears throat> so um, I did get my diploma. Um, I was, uh, I, my class was 170. I was 169, I think. Oh, wow. Man, you beat somebody, though. <laughs> Not the last. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was much of an improvement, really. But uh, at that at that time, were you were you thinking about what you wanted to do for like a career, or were you interested? I know you had already done your test flight by that time. Oh yeah. How, how many? Oh, yeah. How much flying had you done by the time you graduated well, high school? I, I, I had acquired my private pilot license. Oh, by the time you graduated. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. 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 So uh, I, I thought I was. Uh, Hot stuff, Hot stuff, you yeah, know? for sure. And uh, but um, so I got I got that done, and uh, I wanted my aspiration was I wanted to go fly for the airlines, you know. Okay. And I was thinking, well, you know, I'm really not bright person here, you know. I mean, I'm <laughs> not that smart, so I need to go to mechanic school, and maybe I can become a flight engineer, and uh, through that means I'll I'll get to fly on the airlines, you know. But mm -hmm. um, I ended up. Um, in 1970, I went down to Costa Rica, stayed there for almost a year, uh, came back and uh, went to school, went to uh, mechanic school in California. Mm. And uh, uh, thanks to uh, my uh, 
my wife, she put me through school while I was just, uh, she was working and I just uh, did the school thing, you know, mm -hmm. which it was great because I really absorbed it and I was actually, I was actually pretty good nice. uh, doing that. So I was there uh, right at two years we were there, you know, and uh, I already had applications to Brand F Airlines, which is a defunct airline now, mm. but uh, they said, yeah, come by and uh, we'd like to talk to you. And uh, Petroleum Helicopters was another outfit that uh, I had applied to. And they said, if you can pass a physical, uh, you got a job. Wow. And uh, we drove, <clears throat> as soon as I got my license, we drove to uh, Denham Springs to her mom and dad's place, you know, and stayed there for a few, uh, few months and went to Lafayette, got employed by Petroleum Helicopters and worked there for a while. But cool. Never did uh, pursue the uh, airline career uh, really? thing, you know. Was that just because the you liked doing the uh, the maintenance work too much, or well, doing the engineering work? Well, you know, the uh, I got to the, I got to the point to where um, after I finished Petroleum Helicopters, which I was there like uh, close to about three years, uh, came to this field, Baton Rouge. And I got hired on at, as a mechanic at okay. um, the local uh, repair station. Mm -hmm. And from there, I, I could see people coming in, charter pilots come in, you know, and they're, um, they sit around the whole day. You know, after I talked to them for a little while, you know, I discovered that they were going a lot. They were going at night, you know, not, not sleeping in their own beds and all that stuff, you yeah. know. And it was just, I figured, well, this is probably not what I really want to do and I really enjoy flying the smaller airplanes mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to be like enjoy it and fly it and mix both of them you know um, so I figured by that time I said by the time I'm 50 I want to be like a business owner um, I want to be doing it to where I can call the shots you know yeah and and this what happens I missed that target by about five or six years but mm -hmm. I think I arrived I'm here now yeah. I'm kind of at, at the top of my heap so I think now I'm looking to finish out my the end of days doing something that will satisfy me more spiritually than anything else mm -hmm. and that would be doing mission work cool yeah I definitely want to talk about Talk about that. Uh, get to that and talk about it. Cause you, you've already done a lot and got plans to do more. And it sounds yeah. sounds awesome. Um, yes. What is your? So you, you? How many kids do you have? I have uh, I have two daughters. Okay. And you had so when you uh, you were y'all you went to California for a few years and then uh, came back here and yeah. you've been living in the Baton Rouge area since. Yeah. The yeah. I guess what would that be the like mid 70s or something like that is that right yeah, yeah. okay but uh the uh, i got two daughters two biological daughters uh, mm -hmm. one is uh right at uh, 40 47 years of age and my youngest one is 23 okay so i nice. believe kind of spacing them <laughs> right. a little bit right and yeah. i also had two sons um okay. that um you know they were with me from the time they were four six something like that and two so they're uh, they're a big part of of my life as well. Right. Uh, and then who works here with you? That's at my the shop? my youngest boy. Okay. Um, he works with me. He's my avionics technician, 
he does a lot of the technical work that mm -hmm. nobody wants to do and everybody's <laughs> afraid of in airplanes, you know, mm -hmm. dealing with computers and electronics. And most most people shy away from it because they don't understand it. You right. Know? Um, so what about, so you were working here for a while and then when did you start, you said like you're 55 or so when you started GH Enterprises, is that right? No, 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 no. Um, uh, that's what I said when I was way younger back in the 70s, 75, when I actually was gainfully employed working on, in the business, you know. Um, but GH Enterprises didn't come about till 91. Okay. Uh, and that's when Don um, is kind of like, hey, I'm, I'm forming, I'm taking my group of airplanes from the charter company uh, away from this other group over here. So we need a mechanic. You interested? So, uh, yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I did, and um, never regretted it. Never looked back. It's it's been it's been a great uh, business to go to, to be in. Yeah, that's and so that's thirty years this year, right? Uh, Ninety five is I incorporated GH Enterprises. Okay. Yeah, almost thirty. Yeah, yeah, but ninety one I was basically doing business ass, you know, and just right. and I actually worked out of this hangar for oh, about really? for about uh, about a year and a half, two years. Okay, but uh, yeah, I had I had some great people in my life, you know. The um, um, one of the principals here is uh, his name is Newton Thomas. He he let me work out of this hangar free of rent of anything you know i mm -hmm. mean no no utilities nothing uh jay martin was the guy that really connect make the connection for me mm -hmm. and um uh, there's some people that i'm really thankful and grateful for that, mm -hmm. that, that, that the good lord put them in my life because they they had an interest to see me succeed mm -hmm. um i guess they had a motives too you know but uh, I, I never questioned that i mean i just know that without their help i wouldn't be sitting here I haven't done this or, or accumulated all this you know but right initially when I first moved here it was myself and another another guy a helper and uh we just worked and goofed off a lot <laughs> <laughs> cool so what so you mentioned that you went to the engineering school and then went to work for petroleum helicopters yeah. but uh you work on planes here so how much crossover is that whenever you go to the to learn the trade and everything you you can come out and work on helicopters and and planes well you know once you once you acquire the uh the AMP license the airframe power plant license from the FAA mm -hmm. I can work on a shuttle <laughs> I can oh, work wow. on a DC3 I, you know on old airplanes yeah I can work on pretty much anything this uh there's no real regulation that says you can't do that okay now there's some requirements you know recency of experience and things like that that you need to have uh for to exercise those privileges but uh the uh, the u.s regulation lets me pretty much do anything as long as i've had the proper schooling and tooling and and um manuals to deal with yeah other countries are not so generous you know like canada <clears throat> but for everything you do, you gotta have a special rating uh, for their system. You know, okay. uh, the British are the same way, and Canada follows that that rule there. Right. A lot of a lot of the uh, international community in aviation, they either follow the U.S. They have their own 
which kind of patterns the United States uh, mm -hmm. rules and regulations, or they're totally out there on the British side, you know. But, um, yeah. Uh, so you can work on anything? Yeah. Just roll it up in here and you can fix it? Yeah. If I can get it through that door. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you can get or that door. ramp out there can support the weight, yeah. I can. But, I mean, I, I much prefer staying to the things that I know best mm -hmm. or that I'm more comfortable with. And uh, if you want to become an expert, you you work on the one thing that you do the best mm. and not try to be going out there digging on everything that you know, you know very little about. And that's come to bite me before, you know, that I work on airplanes that are older and don't know that much about it and end up getting over my head. Mm -hmm. Never been a problem that I couldn't fix it or, or accomplish what I needed to get done, but in terms of money and stuff like that, it probably cost me a lot just mm -hmm. because I was trying to be, I can do it. Yeah. We're just trying to do it all. Yeah. So, uh, so we're, we're currently at Baton Rouge airport, kind of in the, the Northwest side of yeah. the airport. You have a hangar here and is this your hangar right next to it also with the other no. planes in it? No. no okay. No. So you, you just have one of your planes that, that, um, over there. Yeah, that hangar is actually vacant right now. One of my ex-customers still owns the lease on it. Okay. And um, I kind of sneak airplanes in there. Right. <laughs> I mean, if no one's using it, just put a plane over there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so how, what planes do you own? Wh which planes are yours? Well, I own the uh, Piper Super Cub. Mm -hmm. I own uh, this Cherokee uh, right behind you, mm -hmm. uh, Cherokee 180. And uh, just recently purchased a uh, Beach Baron uh, E55, nice. that uh, which is like that one over there, right? So uh, the shorter it's, version of that one okay, over there, sitting across the. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What was the first plane that you bought? The uh, first airplane I ever owned is the Super Cub. Oh, really? Yeah, and it, it sat in the back of the hangar for about. 10 years before I actually committed to put it together and go fly it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, and make it. So you bought it, so you bought it, it wasn't, it was in pieces. When it was it. flying, it was actually belonged to a friend of mine. Okay. And um, <clears throat> we started working on it and it started getting expensive. And right. uh, he finally one day approached me and says, you want to buy it? <laughs> I said, yeah, I'll buy it. So I ended up buying it for a lot more, more than what it was worth. Mm. Well, now my 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 thought was, well, you know, I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna have fun with it, and eventually probably do something like a mission or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I did that. Uh, got it flying. I had fun with it, and uh, did a mission, and ended up breaking it in the mountains in Mexico. So. <laughs> was that on the first one that happened? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So tell me the tell me what the first mission or what the plan was with that once you got it going. Yeah, well, the first the, the first plan on that was the, the airplane was still kind of in pieces in mm. the back of the hangar, and um, I happened to be at church with a friend of mine, you know, and uh, the the sermon that day was about discipleship and how, what the disciples did. They went out and went all over the place, you know, and and I, I can only imagine what it was, what what it would have been like in Israel, you know, when in those days where they had to walk and travel in deserts and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, by boat in the Mediterranean just to get to different places. So I'm thinking, you know what, if I get that little airplane going, I could go to Mexico and land in some remote place. And this airplane can do it, you know, some little strip somewhere, you know, and 
go out there and visit a farmer and hand him a little Bible. Mm-hmm. And I shared that with a friend of mine, dear, dear friend of mine, Ryan Williams. <laughs> and um, he thought about it and said, man, you can't do that by yourself. <laughs> we got to do this. And uh, pretty soon it, it kind of grew to the point where, like, we named it the Wings of the Spirit. We form, actually formed a uh, 501c3 uh, corp to, to do that. And the intent was to go out and, and spread the word, you know, be the hands and feet of Jesus and uh, be able to um, use it. And then later, year, later on, we would uh, turn it into an entity that would help during disasters, you mm-hmm. know, disaster relief. Uh, and we do that now. He does it better than anybody I know, you know, as far as gathering people and motivating people to go to this thing. So, like, for instance, during the hurricane, we went to, um, they, he went to Lake Charles and okay. had a cooking trailer and did a lot of uh, a lot of feeding there. Cool. And done that in several hurricanes during the, uh, during the flood in 2016. Mm-hmm. That man worked relentlessly to clean houses and all that stuff. But... At any rate, not to digress from what, what you asked me about, so we got the airplane together. Yeah. Um, had a photographer that was going with me. Um, we had 50 pounds of Bibles, not the complete Bibles, but the uh, Gospel according to John in mm. Spanish. Our gear, photography gear, his gear. I mean, the airplane was packed. <laughs> it was packed. Not only that, but it was overgrowth. Mm. Everything we did was so gross, you know. Probably, I think the airplane full weight on this like seventeen hundred pounds, something like that. I probably might have been two thousand pounds, about three hundred pounds over. Wow! But um, we launched the mission, headed from here to uh, Galveston for fuel. From Galveston, ended up in Corpus Christi. Spent the night there. Went into uh, Reynosa. Mexico, mm-hmm. clear there, went to Saltillo, Mexico, and um, I was looking for an orphanage or somewhere to place those little Bibles, you know, and uh, hired a taxi cab driver to drive us around a little bit. Um, am I getting too windy? No, no, this no, no, this is Garrett. This is great. And uh, I said, we want to go to a uh, to a uh, orphanage, mm-hmm. if there's, there's one in this city, you know, Uh so yeah, I'll take you to this place that I know of. So we showed up over there. There was no people there. You could tell there were kids there that had been there during the week, but uh-huh. they were gone, and we was there on the weekend, you know. So what about, is there another place? So yeah, it's this church that I know that I hear of, that I heard of it, you know. It's called Cristo Vive. And uh, he brought us there and dropped us off there, and uh, we stayed there the whole day. Mm-hmm. Um, Great experience, you know. You just talk to people and mingle with them and all that stuff. Cool. It's a great place. Um, from there, we left, went into um, uh, a place uh, called Mazatlan on the on the uh, on the uh, Sea of Cortez side. Okay. Know, on the other side of Mexico, yeah. bordering mm-hmm. in the Pacific side, basically. And um, spend the night there, rested up. Next day, we moved to um, Tepic, Mexico. And I've been, th- I've been to that place there before because I'd been in medical missions with a dear, dear friend of mine, Stan Brock, mm-hmm. that got me actually 
started in doing this kind of stuff. You know, I should have given me a vehicle to do it with. And, um, but that was like 1990 or something like that. 2015 is when I did that mission in Mexico, you know. So I wanted to go see some of those villages that he and I actually gone there with a bunch of medical personnel, you know. Mm -hmm. So took off, found the place. Saw the runway, came in, skirted around, checking, make sure there's no animals on the runway and all that stuff. Um, finally committed to land after I made a pass over it. Came in and landed and ground looped the airplane. <laughs> Stuck the wing on the, the left wing on the ground, broke the spars, and uh, pretty much end end the story there. You know. So so that is, so explain exactly what that is the ground loop whenever you come in like you're coming in landing and you like touch down and how fast are you does it the rocks to the side like what happened that caused the the wing to hit the ground the um i'll, I'll explain it. i'll give you a little probably more more a lot more detail that but uh in uh tail dragger airplanes which is what the super cub is mm-hmm. the center of gravity when you're flying it's different than the center of gravity when you're on the ground, mm-hmm. when you're going to, be, you, to a ground vehicle, to a flight vehicle. Being that we were overgrossed and probably my center of gravity was way, way back in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, my suspicion is that when the, um, when the, uh, making that shift, because I came in, landed, normal landing, and all of a sudden, all I could hear is a, the tire screeching or something was screeching and pretty soon it was just like what happened i was facing in the opposite direction okay i said oh man this is not good the engine it quit not because of uh, uh i shut it down but it just kind of quit and didn't hit the ground or anything like that you know to make it stop mm-hmm. so i restarted it and taxied the airplane over to the to the top of the uh the, the the runway has a little bit of upgrade to the other to the departure end, you know. So mm-hmm. I went up there, pulled in, unstrapped myself, and get out, and the wing was just kind of like bent. Bent. Wow. So this is not good. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. <clears throat> so, in, in essence, the, uh, the the ground loop phenomenon is mm-hmm. caused by when the uh, you be, you're going from being an airplane to being a a ground vehicle type mm. uh, thing. So you know? the tail just whipped around. Yeah. Once it grabbed the, the hit the ground, it whipped you around. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so right there next to the uh, to the runway is a uh, school. You know, um, you know, all the kids were going in and out, and I guess they were out there looking at the airplanes, the airplane land, because it was I was the only airplane there. Uh-huh, you okay. know, they came in and disturbed the peace of the place, right. you know. <laughs> so I'm at the other end where they got to go by to go home. And um, I'm disassembling the airplane. And they, they're walking by and uh, looking at the airplane stop. And they're very, very curious, you know. And uh, one of them says, what kind of airplane is What kind of helicopter is this? <laughs> I said, uh, why? I said, Cause we never seen one land like that. <laughs> I thought it was a helicopter, uh, but uh, anyway, um, I took the airplane apart, 
with the help of a uh, a uh, local there, mm -hmm. you know, uh, very, 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 very helpful individual there. Took it apart. The next day, I spent the night there. Um, actually, the school let me stay in their dormitories. Nice. Um, but uh, the next day, early in the morning, I headed down to the uh, to where the uh, Mexican FAA is. Mm. And uh, basically, I went over there and I said, hey, um, I had a ground loop incident, damaged the wing, can't fly it. And the, uh, the, the uh, inspector says, okay, we got to go up there and look at the airplane and investigate the accident. I said, by the way, I uh, took it apart as well. <laughs> he looked at me and said, you weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> Not until we said you could, yeah, because you know, it's part of the accident investigation. Said, so, well, I did, <laughs> so uh, I don't know what to say. So anyway, um, I ended up having to charter an airplane to go up there. The uh, the pilot, the pilot, the charter pilot, myself, and two inspectors. We went mm -hmm. up there and uh, took pictures of the accident, and they took my statement, came back down. And I sat there for another week waiting for the uh, man, the, the 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 federal government to decide that I could move the airplane and, and and take my punishment for violating their rules. What was your punishment? Uh, basically, it was just sign sign a piece of paper saying that I was a dumbass and, <laughs> <laughs> and that I shouldn't have done that, and that, and it was my responsibility that the airplane was damaged. Yeah, but the. Um, Everything in there is so bureaucratic anyway, you know. Mm. I, they, I couldn't move the airplane without the special authorization. I had to have a piece of paper saying, you can move it. And the reason why is because if you stop at a checkpoint, and they got checkpoints everywhere, uh, and you got something unusual like an airplane on the back of a trailer, mm. <laughs> they want to know, why are you doing, what are you doing with that? You know. So um, I had to get special permission for that. So. I finally got that, brought it down from the mountain, and um, put it in storage for about a month. Came home. A month later, I went back and went through the whole process again, get special permission so mm -hmm. I could move it, hire a trucking company to bring it back to the States. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so you had to trailer it all the way back to oh, yeah. Baton Rouge. Oh, yeah. I was yeah. all totally disassembled okay you know the wings the uh, tail feathers all that came off right yeah. and was it so the ryan was with you for no, that no no oh, okay he wasn't uh, ryan went with me on another mission almost to the year to the date i mean year to the date uh he and uh his dad uh, myself and another pilot that had another airplane just like mine um we set up set out did the same mission mm -hmm. this time we carried 2,000 bibles with us nice the gospel according to john <clears throat> and uh we did that mission and actually completed the mission without any events and any no problems everything worked perfectly let's just like we designed it but you know it, uh, i designed it only in the sense that i knew that i was going to go to these places mm -hmm. or wanted to go to these places but once I got there, I didn't know what we were going to do mm. other than just start walking around, you know. So, and that's what we did, and it was immensely successful that we got it done. Uh, 
like it did, you know, without yeah. any any problems. Nobody <clears throat> got sick. Uh, the airplanes functioned every time we turned the key to get started, and you know, and just went all the way to Guatemala City. Spent time in Guatemala City and came back uh, following the Gulf Coast. So we flew basically 4,500 miles. We were gone 15 days. Dang, that's yeah. awesome. And that was in this plane right here? In this, in this plane, it was actually two airplanes. Oh, just okay. like two identical airplanes almost, minus a little bit newer than the other airplane. Mm -hmm. But it was two of us in each airplane, and we all carried our luggage and Bibles and all that, you know. Cool. Luggage meaning just to, I just had about a 25-pound bag with some stuff to put on. Yeah. <laughs> a few t-shirts and stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So what, Um. so the Stan Brock, you, you told me last time we talked about his book, and I've listened to uh, most of it actually, but he... Give me how did you meet him and and you mentioned that the the couple of missions that you've done with Ryan was in the last five or six years, but you did some medical mission things yeah. with his organization starting in the nineties right so yeah. oh yeah uh, so give me a brief overview of of what that is and uh and how you got involved in that well um Stanbrock um this was on a Sunday afternoon. Um, I was kind of didn't have much to do that afternoon, and uh, I got a call from a friend of mine. She was um, she was the uh, <clears throat> uh, the um, the secretary for the office that we worked for, a couple hangers down the road from here. Okay, and um, basically. The uh, it's called an FBO, you know. So people come in, buy gasoline, use restrooms, make phone calls, that kind of stuff, and, and move on, get, keep, keep going. You know. Mm -hmm. So her and I have been talking about that. I wanted to be in a medical mission. I wanted to change careers. Actually, I was, and I was actually studying, doing a little bit of pre-med work. You know, just because I'm going to be a nurse or a doctor. I don't know which one, but I just going to. I want to do that. So one day when I retire, I'm going to do. I'm going to a third world country and and do something. Mm -hmm. I never knew. I didn't know Stanbrock. I seen him in the Mutual of Omaha, mm. you know. But I I didn't really know his story. Just like everybody else has lived long enough and had happened to looked at looked at television and, and saw the Mutual of Omaha uh, programs, you know, which mm -hmm. is extremely interesting. And uh, I get that call from her. She says, Hey, is somebody here really, this is a really neat person. She says, I think you need to come and meet him. So, yeah, sure, okay, I'm, I'll, I'll be there. And I wasn't that far. I mean, I was probably about 30 minutes away from the airport, you know, so I came over and met Stan Brock. You know, he was coming from a mission in Mexico. Oh, cool. Um, and uh, he was on a uh, airplane, uh, a uh, airplane somebody let him use for mm -hmm. the mission you know and we started talking and uh we exchanged telephones telephone numbers and uh i guess probably about three months later i was on a mission with him going wow to mexico and uh in that mission actually uh i flew an airplane i had partnership in 
and got to know the man and we spent a lot of time together you know and talk about it especially when you're flying mm -hmm. slow airplane going to, right. going to mexico you know to remote areas you know and here's a man that uh flew in the bush a lot in africa south america where it's actually he, he got started mm -hmm. in south america and uh he was he shared with me his story you know what he was doing and and, and I mean, it was really a good experience to be with him. And from there on, I pretty much had the bug, you know. This is what I want to do, especially after I heard his side of the story, you know. So we went to Mexico. We were going uh, for Thanksgiving. We were going right at uh, 17 days. Hmm. And uh, most of that time was spent in villages and the airplane that I was flying is a Cherokee 6, a little bit bigger airplane than, than my airplane here, but it carries a lot of stuff, you know. So mm -hmm. my function was to go to the different villages and move personnel around, doctors and nurses, you know. Cool. And bring supplies, bring water. Uh, a lot of those places, you could see from this mountain ridge to the other mountain ridge, you could see the village over there. But to get from here to there on foot, it'll be an eight-hour trek, you know. So wow. you know I mean? Once you get there, you don't want to be tired. You want to be go doing something functional, you know. Yeah. But on the airplane, it'll be a five, ten-minute ride. Mm. So vital to have an airplane as opposed to trying to do it on foot or horseback or it'll just kill you. Right. But um, I enjoyed the heck out of that. You know, it was really a, a great experience, you know, and just kind of – thinking about being a doctor or a nurse or something like that. And I said, man, this is what I want to do. And uh, I did, and I got hooked. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't get to be a doctor, mm. <laughs> you know. And I didn't get to be a, a nurse either, you know. But um, I enjoyed that very much. How, so how many of those trips have you done? Oh, gosh. Um, I lost track of how many uh, trips we did. Because um, uh, at one time, we did about four of those into Mexico. Um, we did one to uh, Honduras in, uh, in 1991. I'm trying to remember now. The year may not be correct. This is when the Hurricane Mitch hit Honduras and did a lot of damage there. Mm -hmm. We did, I did a trip there. It was a long trip, about 15 days. And then uh, we were doing regular trips down to uh, Brownsville. Uh, and then we'd go into uh, Mexico. Uh, but every, once a month, every other, every other month, we actually had a mission going into Mexico. And did a bunch of those. So I wow. Just, <clears throat> I lost track of what old, yeah, how many of those we did, you know, but um, every one of those was kicking the pants. I mean, it was really successful and and uh, very uh, fulfilling mm -hmm. for my needs. It's just I wanted to help right. and do this kind of stuff. So most of it, were you transporting uh, people on, like most of that, from here to there? Or yeah. between, yeah. was it like between villages down there? What was the normal? Uh, actually, uh, the, the ones we were doing in Mexico, uh, especially here that we had every other month, we were doing one in uh, Brownsville. Mm -hmm. What we would do is uh, I would gather doctors and nurses from here, and a lot of them wanted to go with us, you know. And uh, pretty much I had a group of uh, that always wanted to be part of it. So it was, a, it was at least four 
of them. And uh, we pack up and go from here to Brownsville. Uh, and then from there, we get on the bus on the Mexican side, and that bring us into um, Villahermosa, which mm. is a uh, desolate town out there that needs a lot of work, you know, a lot of help. Uh, and we spent the whole weekend there. You know, we, typically we got there on a Thursday afternoon, uh, get to on site, set up the equipment. Friday morning we helping and doing stuff. Saturday, the whole thing, the same thing, the whole day. Sunday morning, we're pretty much cleaning up, packing, and coming home. Cool. Yeah, so um, that worked out pretty good. Mm-hmm. And that's, what's the name of the that organization that you were doing? It's called Remote Area Medical. Okay, Remote Area Medical. And that was the one that Stan Brock started. Yeah. And they still operate yes. now, yes. right? Um, yeah. And then the Wings of the Spirit was the one that you and... <clears throat> Ryan, Ryan Williams. Williams started and yeah. are doing some of those too. Yeah. So how many trips are you taking nowadays? How many of these are you doing now? I think well, you said you want to do a big one, but are you still doing some of the regular week trips, two-week trips? No, I, I'm not able to do those right now. Uh, my my my, uh, my dream would be to be able to do those with more frequency. Mm-hmm. But um, nowadays with the uh, COVID-19 and all that stuff, things right, are getting right. a little more difficult to do. But um, we can do them in the in in this stateside, you know. But um, working and, and trying to make all these things happen is not the easiest things to, you know to do. But um, right. Um, I, I ideally would like to be able to do at least two long trips. Um, one of them would be to. Um, circumnavigate the United States along the uh, the borders and mm-hmm. the, uh, the the coastal waters and um, stop at um, probably designated places places about every maybe couple of hours of flight time meet up with uh, uh, life groups or anybody that's willing to participate with us and mm-hmm. Join hands and pray for the country. Uh, pray for the unborn children that are being murdered, mm-hmm. and complete the mission all the way around. And uh, hopefully, through the uh, wonders of technology, we can, when the finish is done, we can all have a uh, a uh, podcast cast or something like that and yeah. join hands. <laughs> um, through technology and have a big prayer yeah. for the United States, for our leadership, for the unborn babies. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the missions that I want to do. And hopefully uh, it'll come to fruition uh, in the next uh, two or three months. Um, I'm thinking probably toward uh, early June, okay. maybe mid-June when it gets warmer up north. Right, yeah. It's still yeah. slamming with snow up there right now. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to go out there when it's too cold. So, what do you? How do you plan a trip? How long of a trip would that be if you go around the entire United States? Uh, it's, it's. I think it's probably close to about nine thousand miles. Wow. Um, and, and how long that would take you? How uh, like how many days to do it? You think? 
that's a difficult part. You know, I'm not, I really don't want to put too much uh, brain power to it because I know I should and I need to. Uh, but if you start thinking in terms of uh, how long is it going to be, how much is it going to cost you, and how much of an effort you're going to have to put forth, you may end up getting discouraged yeah. and not do it. Yeah. Um, 9,000 miles, I figure uh, if you average 200 miles an hour, and I, don't hold me on the math, it's probably somewhere close to around 30 some odd hours, you know, 40 hours. Hmm. Um, that obviously has a specific fuel cost to do all that, but I, I think the I think God will provide mm -hmm. and, and we'll make it happen. I mean, it's just like when I did the mission to Guatemala and all that stuff. Yes, we had money and we had allocated, but we weren't spending gas and all that stuff. But mm -hmm. We really didn't plan anything. We just showed up and started doing things, you know. So that's cool. Uh, I think <clears throat> I hope that's how it's going. Well, I pray that that's how it's going to go. Yeah, that's cool. What's your uh, what's the what's your favorite place that you've flown to? Well, you know, I, I don't have a favorite place, but uh, there's a lot of places that I that I like that I really uh, enjoyed being there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the places in Mexico that I really enjoyed was uh, Puerto Escondido. It's a beautiful port. Okay. You know, it's a hidden port in Puerto Escondido. That's what it means. Um, and when I stopped there, we stopped there for a day and a half, I think, when we were there uh, on that mission uh, mm -hmm. in 2016. And uh, I always had the the thought that I wanted to come back. Mm -hmm. um, and there's all kind of places along the way that, gee, we have to really call my attention that I would like to go back over there and spend more time, just deliberately spend more time and do more of the mission work. Um, Flores, Guatemala is another beautiful place. Um, a lot of history there from the Maya Indians, the, uh, mm -hmm. the um, Pyramids, all those things there, the cities that they left. Uh, those are beautiful places to go visit. Didn't go visit any of those. Mm. But um, when I lived in Guatemala as a kid, we lived in an area where it was, I mean, it was, it was kind of like the bed of the uh, <clears throat> Mayans in that, in that part of the uh, where we lived. Mm. You know, it was all kind of ruins and things that, as a kid, I didn't appreciate. Yeah. Know, I was seven, eight, 19 years of age, you know, that was just like, didn't mean anything to me. But now that I look at all that stuff, it means a lot, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, it's cool. But um, <clears throat> I like Guyana. I like um, <clears throat> South America. Mm -hmm. Lethem is a, um, it's a place where the remote area medical has a, um, a, um, a base of operations for uh, doing air ambulance. Um, there's a place, um, it's called the Daranawa Ranch. Yeah, that was, that was in the book. <clears throat> yeah, that's where yeah. Uh, Stan showed up and yeah. uh, he was spent there, uh, I think he spent like 17, 18 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's when uh, Marlon Perkins discovered uh, Stan and kind of shot him into Stardom, I guess, if you want to call it that, because okay. I think he did a few movies and and uh, he was 
took them all kind of places, including coming home to the States and being able to form Remote Area Medical. Cool. What's that? Can you tell me or can you recall the toughest place to land in one of these? Maybe it was like a remote area <clears throat> or something. What was like the toughest landing that you had to do going on these mission missions? In uh, in Mexico, in the Sierra Madres, there's a, it's a village called um, Guaynamota. Mm-hmm. And that place was uh, one way in, one way out. Mm. So um, it's in the river gorge and right on the side of the mountain they cut, uh, um, I don't even want to call it a strip. <laughs> Because it's not, <laughs> it would it wouldn't serve as a strip, you know. Uh, I mean, it was just they they cleared out some rocks and filled out some holes, and it was flat enough so you can actually land an airplane. Mm. So at the very beginning of the of the uh, when you when you touch down, and it was probably about maybe two or three hundred feet of flat land, and from there on the uh, the, the land actually started rising, you know. Mm. So you touch down, you dump the flaps, and add power so you can make it to the top of the hill. Oh, wow. And when you get to the top of the hill, you turn around and you're facing downhill now so you can take off going downhill regardless of which way the wind is blowing. Wow. So that was kind of like um, <clears throat> really um, scary at first. Yeah. But I had the benefit... Uh, when I showed up there the first time, Stan and I, <clears throat> we hired a local pilot, mm. and we actually flew that mission, flew into that field with the pilot, and he was instructing me, and I was flying, <laughs> Okay. And, and he's telling me, this is how you do it. He said, the other thing I'm going to tell you is this, do not fly in the middle of the day when it's hot and windy. Uh, if you're going to fly, fly in the morning. Flying, you know, toward the afternoon, mm-hmm. but do not fly in the middle of the day. So, I didn't take that to heed when I flew into Mexico and ground loop my super. Oh, uh, that was the time of day. <laughs> yeah, it was right at noon when it happened. Oh wow, there you, you know? go. I guess that guy knew his stuff. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, that was a tough. Mm-hmm. That was a really tough landing site, um, and. Um, I typically operated out of there. With, I had four people and some stuff, not not a full gross airplane, uh, and not full fuel. So what you did, you what you would do is you uh, get the engine started and start going downhill. And as you accelerated, you add more power to uh, keep the rocks from or the prop from sucking up rocks and really doing some severe damage to the airplane or wow. or damage to the propeller. So finally, when you got flying speed, you kind of get airborne and let the airplane accelerate. And as soon as you kind of finish that process, it was a big cliff. Wow. And then you just kind of relax power. I mean, the, the pressure's on the elevator just to get the airplane to nose over and get into the valley. And then you follow the river. And But then you had enough flying speed so you can actually climb and give full power to the uh, so you can actually get going and climb above the, the ridge of the mountain so that you can go wherever you're going, especially if you were going back to home base. It would be like 
climb to about 10,000 feet, mm -hmm. and then you start coming down once you pass the ridge. Hmm. Wow. So you, so that airport, I mean, or that clearing, <clears throat> not an airport, but yeah. you almost were just kind of going straight off the end of it, and the, yeah. and the cliff dropped off, and then you're flying. That's <laughs> yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if the engine went, you were like, oh, oh, I don't want to be here. Yeah. <laughs> So this, can this plane right here, what kind of runways can this plane land? Can it land on just like a, a grass runway, like a clearing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. you can. Um, <clears throat> but the performance of the engine and the airplane, it, it um, medium altitudes, and I mean by that, I mean six, 7,000 feet, ain't the greatest. Okay. You know, and um, some of these places are elevated, right? <clears throat> yeah. So yeah. You're operating about six, 7,000 feet, uh, sometimes less, sometimes more. Okay, okay. But in, in the middle of the day when you got high temperatures and the density altitude is how the wings actually create lift, the engine develops power. So if you got high density altitude, you're not flying, the engine's not running at 100 horsepower or what it's supposed to what it's rated for, you know? Okay. So, so that's So you kinda... lose the power that you need. Okay. Yeah. I don't know very much. We haven't got to the... We haven't taken any <laughs> courses yet, or I, I don't know. Carl probably knows more than me, so you'll probably have to explain all the stuff, but I'm assuming yeah. something like that, you're not going to land. That needs, like, a concrete runway to land. Uh, actually, the Pilatus uh, is certified to land in unimproved <clears throat> runways. Um, oh, wow. The... Uh, the flying doctors in uh, Australia, they use they love that airplane. Really? The uh, yeah, hmm. the uh, Canadians, the Royal Mounted Police, they love that airplane because they get in and get out place tight places that typically you couldn't bring another airplane that's not certified or actually can perform like these airplanes do. Yeah. Now this airplane would not go into those places where I went to in the little airplane. Right. You, you know, when I went in that mission with, with Stan. Yeah. So the Super Cub, how how much runway does it need to land? The Super Cub, because it's such a light airplane, it's overpowered. Um, typically in about uh, <clears throat> under 1,000 feet, you can operate. Mm. That's um, pretty cool. You know, the um, you can land and take off under 1,000 feet. But... Um, when you start adding mountains at the end of the uh, <laughs> of the runway and stuff like that, uh, there's no airplane in the world that can actually outclimb a mountain, mm -hmm. especially if you're flying slow and trying to build some kind of profile so you can actually get out outrun it. Most airplanes can't climb like that. Okay. Unless you're a rocket-powered airplane, right? <clears throat> then you just go straight straight up. up. <laughs> right. <coughs> What's your favorite plane to fly? The sm the, s the small Super Cub or one of the bigger ones with a bunch of people. You know, I, I, I really like the Super Cub because it's a toy airplane. And uh, <clears throat> when I go flying out here, um, I seldom go above a thousand feet. Mm. And most of the time there's hawks and buzzards that uh, <laughs> right. you can run. They are, they're thermaling, you know, and you're like, oh, where are they? Okay, oops, they went by. <laughs> I was like, you know, sometimes the buzzers outrun you because they're they can be they can, they tend to be pretty fast when they're diving and stuff like that. You wow. know, but yeah. If I had my brothers, what kind of airplane I, I really like would be a Pilatus uh, Porter. 
Okay. This this airplane has a turbine engine. It'll carry um, it'll carry a big load and it'll land short and take off short. Cool. Is it about that size? This size? No, it's smaller, but it's, it's it has more wing area probably than this airplane here does. Okay. And it's a uh, it's a Hershey wing, so it's a square wing and just it's designed to make lift, mm. be able to get in and get out. Uh, uh, tight places. This wing here um, is a compromise between going slow and being able to go fast. Okay. You can't win both battles. You, you, you know, you can be good at one or the other, but not both of them at the same time. So the combination of uh, trying to uh, getting different flap settings and uh, oh, mm -hmm. wing, um, changing the wing, uh, configuration the, the camber of the wing that's what the flaps do for you kind of makes you allows you to have slower speeds to land slower and carry better loads and things like that at slow flight speeds okay but once you get airborne and you go and you <clears throat> clean up the wing meaning you retract the flaps and mm. now you kind of configure for speed um you know if you run it if you <clears throat> flown on the airlines, you can see when they land, they got all these things sticking out of the wings. Yeah. And that's just so they can go slow, slower, and be able to get off the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, matter of fact, a lot of airliners can't get off the ground if they don't have those, the, the, the uh, lifting devices hmm. in place. And there have been several airplanes that crashed because either the crew forgot to put the right flap setting or wing settings and they run out of runway. Wow, right. So um, the PC-6, <clears throat> it's not that sophisticated of a machine it, and it, it carries a lot. Mm. You know, it's, it has a lot of power. The engine has a lot of power too, so. So this, one, this one's a PC-12, right? Yes, and this PC-12, So you're yes. saying PC-6 was, what, your, what would be your favorite, probably? Oh, the PC-6. Right, just right. because of the mission work. Right. But I mean, I'm, I'm sure it'd be like having a root canal if you're going <laughs> two or three thousand miles in mm -hmm. a slow airplane, you know. Right. Um, so they, uh, you mentioned, uh, or just a second ago, you mentioned sometimes the planes crash, they don't change the settings and things like that, which reminded me of something that Don told me to ask you about. Uh, because he said that you are about to get certified for accident investigation is that the proper yeah. term yeah. for it um so tell me about that what is a you'll be able to investigate crashes and what went wrong and and things like that is that right yeah okay yeah. and so tell me the process of what you're having to go through right now well the to um, get that. accident investigation is something that's always fascinated me you know um and ever since i've been in the industry um you always hear of accidents and, and uh, things that happen, incidents, accidents. And um, I always kind of think about those, you know, what caused it. Well, I mean, a lot of them have to do with the human factor. Mm -hmm. You know, the other one has, uh, has to do with the machine or the mechanic or any of those things, you know. So um, I finally decided I wanted to go ahead and do an accident investigation school. So um, uh, USC in, uh, in uh, Los Angeles mm. has and has forever, seems like, 
had an accident investigation school. Okay. So I went ahead and, and started a process. Um, so that's been uh, really an eye opener for me because there's, uh, there's a lot, you know, a lot of information there that you can use in everyday right. um, things that you see, especially when it comes to an accident. You read about accidents and you sometimes you kind of got your own opinion, you know. Yeah. The, um, I guess the uh, the world as a whole, when an airplane, there's an accident and all you're going to think is, oh man, they just fell out of the sky like a rock, you know, but there's... Um, all kinds of things are happening that lead to that point, and then you—it's irreversible. You, you know, you just, it's a crash, it's a crash. But mm -hmm. accident investigation, there's so much information there in, at the accident site, unless it's, the airplane is totally destroyed and burned down to nothing, or disappears like uh, Malaysia. Yeah, you know that you can never—nobody knows where it is. Mm -hmm. Typically, if there's a wreckage out there, you can back, you can rebuild the accident from by going backwards, just from the evidence that is being left. It just it's like forensic science, you know. Um, you find a dead body, you don't know what, what, why he died unless they open you up and figure out if you had a heart attack or mm -hmm. whatever, you know. That's what I've envisioned. But an accident is kind of like that, you know. You go and look at the details and try to figure it out what happened. So you had to, you went through, is a program that you had to go through and then you go and get certified to be an accident investigator, right? Well, it's not really necessarily that you get certified. It's basically you, you, you learn about the skills required to do accident investigation, mm -hmm. accident reconstruction. And as long as there are going to be airplanes flying, there's going to be accidents and there's going to be some need to uh, identify what caused it. Mm -hmm. what, what, what was the root cause of the problem? And unfortunately, um, in our culture, I think you have to kill people before you actually figure out the problem and then act on fixing that part, that part of the problem. But mm -hmm. by then it's too late because somebody already died. Mm -hmm. um, so my ambition is to be part of the accident prevention kind of thing, you know. Um, uh, a lot of information out there you can pass on and, and try to uh, illustrate to, you know, the flying public, the mechanics, the pilots, the uh, industry. Right. Let's so, let's not kill people before we fix things. Yeah, for sure. So you, once you, are, is it like you complete this? I think Don mentioned that you had to go do some additional things to complete the program. Is yeah, that right? I, I have to go to, uh, I have to go in, in May. I have to go to uh, an, an open lab okay. in Los Angeles. And so that's going to be like a test that where you have to do some of that reconstruction <laughs> and... They, they have thing. they have a huge warehouse and they got all kinds of uh, airplanes there that have been wrecked mm -hmm. uh, and they already know what caused the wreck, the reason for the the uh, the, the failure. So we go over there to uh, the group of us. I think it's like twenty of us. They're gonna be meet there and just look at it, 
and run through the scenario, the investigation scenario, yeah. and uh, figure out um, <clears throat> how to, what, what did it crash? Mm-hmm. What was the root cause? Once you identify that, then you can go back and try to fix things. Mm-hmm. So once you're do- once you do that, is that you would then be able with the FAA? Is that who would like hire you to do investigation, or would you? What exactly would you be doing from there? Not, not the FAA. Uh, the uh, the National Transportation Safety Board is the uh, governmental uh, body okay. that actually investigates all accidents. Okay, be it. Trucks, uh, trains, boats, airplanes. If you hear about an, air, an airplane accident, you hear they ask the uh, NTSB is on its yeah. way to investigate. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily care to be part of that. Uh, um, there, there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, on on the civilian side. There's a lot of a lot of lawyers are uh, out there to, for one reason or another, um, to represent the families of, of the victims. You know that, so they're doing something along those lines. And um, I guess it's, I don't want to say ambulance chasers, you know, but I mean it's there's a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in that. Um, what I'm interested in is being able to be part of a greater thing that prevents accidents as opposed to um, uh, punishing somebody or, yeah. or, or, a, or a company uh, for having a, maybe a defective airplane so, or defective component or something. Uh, my, my favorite thing would be to be able to <clears throat> address problems before they happen. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be a niche there somewhere, mm-hmm. a lot of room there to be able to be into accident <clears throat> prevention and 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 so that that <clears throat> excuse me that's uh you're taking a lot of that now back here working whenever you do things here yeah uh, you mentioned um so yeah. what so what uh what's like the normal operating you mentioned we made a joke earlier if you can roll it through the door you can fix it is that Usually what happens, companies or private plane owners, if they need something done, they just call you and roll the plane over here and yeah. y- y'all fix it up? Yeah. It, it, you know, the um, it's it's like you got a car, right? I mean, if if you want to get your tires changed, <clears throat> you, you're not going to change the tire yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might change it. You pull the wheel off and bring it to the gas station where they can do a tire for you and they'll take it down from nuts and bolts and put a new this does seem a whole lot more complicated than that than swapping the wheel off it was like you got the engines pulled apart and stuff and yeah yeah but i mean i would not um i drive a a chevy uh silverado out there with 2500 diesel i wouldn't even begin to look into that engine compartment and and, uh, (laughs) say i'm gonna do this or even going to do the oil change on this thing mm-hmm. you know by the grace of god i can afford it and bring it to the uh chevrolet dealer and have yeah, them do it have them fix it but uh i don't want to do that uh <clears throat> i can do it on an airplane i don't want to do that in the car in the car or truck mm-hmm. truck or anything like that i don't have that expertise to do it i've accumulated a lot of expertise on this you know mm-hmm. in the years that i've been at it 
So I can recognize a lot of things and fix a lot of things before they even happen. Um, they come at a cost to the customer because they don't, sometimes they don't want to un, um, uh, give in to, hey, you know, it's probably a good idea to fix this now, you know. Right. As opposed to wait <clears throat> to later it's definitely it's a big problem. D people definitely do that on cars. Uh, but I have a feeling that you probably wouldn't want to do that on a plane. Like but they do it. Putting off the maintenance on it. But they do it. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's no different. Mm. It's, it's no different. We'll cut this part out for uh, for whenever Brittany listens to <laughs> Brittany and Tori listen to. <laughs> what, what, what on the microphone. What are typical uh, jobs we get? Annuals, oil changes, are those pretty standard? Or do you do more complex stuff? It, it it varies, it varies. Um, an annual, and you know, just take the airplane, you know, open it all up and look at it and make sure that things conform to the regulations, to the type certificate data sheets, how the airplane is actually certified. Um, tire changes, fixing things that you find during the inspection that need to be fixed. Um, comply with service bulletins that are mandatory. Airworthiness directives, which is the government. Uh, way of uh, fixing things on airplanes. Uh, we do all those things. Now, you can't do it all, and you need to have the, the, the documentation to do it by, you know. Um, so that's very important. Um, changing tires, it's not a big deal. Spark plugs, compression tests. Uh, you may come in here. Um, hey, my, I got a rough, rough meaning the engine when you switch ignition sources, uh, shakes and rattles, and you don't want to fly with an, with an engine like that. So you may approach me and say, uh, something's wrong with my engine. It's not, in, it's not doing right. It's the uh, magneto, it's not checking correctly. We can troubleshoot it, fix it, change the spark plug, change the cable, or even the magneto. Do you when you fix a plane? Do you like take it around the block, make sure everything's working right? I don't, because uh, my liability doesn't cover me being a pilot. Okay. Uh, in in the in, as far as the repair the, the repairs that I do here, mm -hmm. uh, so any of these airplanes right here, if I'm doing some heavy maintenance, um, it's uh, it's the uh, owner's responsibility to. F go test and it's and it's may, may not necessarily be a responsibility but it's like let's go fly it and see if you like it and see anything wrong uh, especially mm -hmm. if i do an engine change or anything like that yeah i always recommend that we fly it not we me personally i'll go with you pilot your pilot right and we go fly it and put it through the paces and come back and land and look at it and you can have your airplane cool um yeah i do that uh, a lot Cool. You know, just go with the with the pilot. Now, if if if, if it's my airplane, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. Um, so what's the so? All right, let's. Earlier, you mentioned about this plane right behind me. So, uh, if Carl wanted to buy this plane and own it, what all is involved um, in terms of maintaining it and like keeping it ready to fly? What's you know, obviously, you got to do the oil changes and like the put fuel in and stuff but what what kind of ongoing things extra things besides just paying for the plane is involved in owning a plane well there there's uh <clears throat> there are insurance cost 
Insurance, big one. Got to be. Um, are you going to just park <coughs> it outside in the uh, right there on the ramp and tie it down and let the uh, elements just kind of beat up on it? Right. So you got to rent a hanger. You don't have to, but you if you want to preserve, if you want to preserve it looking good and yeah. the paint stays good and the uh, the uh, your radios are not being beaten by the sun, you know the constant the sun. I mean, inside of that airplane, just like in the car, it could get 120 degrees. Right, right. That's not good for the radius <clears throat> and things like that, the upholstery, all those things, you know. So, um, if it gets cold at night. That's bad mm. as well, you know. So ideally, you would have hangar space to hang the airplane. Uh, you're going to pay somebody to store the airplane. Uh, average cost probably a couple, $300 a month to store a little airplane like this. If you can find a space here in town, mm -hmm. you may get it cheaper somewhere else if you maybe co-op with somebody else and you maybe you have it like a t-hanger down over here up the road here uh where you can put two airplanes in the same space you know mm -hmm. in, in a smaller hangar that's one way to reduce the cost but the, you know you got tire wear you got annual inspections an annual inspection could run you two or three thousand dollars if there's nothing wrong with it um, oh wow it could run you less more depending on the time it takes yeah yeah, yeah. So um, all those things things tend to jack up the price. On not only you have the initial investment to acquire the machine, but now you need to if you're going to be flying it. How much are you going to be flying it? I mean, it's just going to be like every other Sunday when you can. Well, that's not good. That's no good for the machine, and for you as a pilot, it's probably not building your skills because mm -hmm. you're not practicing practicing often enough to retain that uh, memory items that you need to have. So you come in one day after you haven't flown the airplane in a month and slam it out there on the runway. <laughs> you know, you have a hard landing and blow out a tire or something like that. Whose fault was it? Is it the airplane? Was it the mechanic? Or was it your fault? You know, and people tend to kind of shrug off their responsibility yeah, by. The a bit. Well, I just had a, <clears throat> I just had an annual done on this airplane six months ago. Oh, really? <laughs> and how long is my warranty supposed to last you? Uh, but I mean, that's that's getting into pet peeves of mine, you know. <clears throat> but um, all those things add to being able to maintain the airplane, keep it up, um, you know, and make it. All work for you. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it's better to rent than to own it. Cause there you go. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you, is it better to <clears throat> rent one than to own one? Yeah. But you can rent your plane out to someone else, right? Yeah. 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 So I could buy one and let Carl rent it from me. Or no, you're saying that Carl should buy it and I should rent it from Carl. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, there's a uh, that's a prop plane, right? Yeah, that's a turbo. That's a turbo prop. Okay. Yeah. All the other ones I think so far have been jets, jets taken off. Yeah. 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 It's cool. We are actually on the airport. In case you were wondering, if you didn't hear that, as planes flying over. Um, yeah. How many? Do you know how many offhand? How many hours you have flown? Uh, I'm close to five thousand hours. Okay. 
a lot of it is probably bootleg time. <laughs> but that, but I, what I mean by that is um, I go and test fly with somebody, um, like on this airplane. I got a dear friend of mine, Jay Martin. And uh, typically when he comes over and picks up his airplane, he says, you want to go? So let's yeah, let's go fly. Let's go out there and do a couple of approaches and cool. fly around. And he lets me fly. So if I'm manipulating the controls, I can log that time. So over 48, 90 years of been doing this, I've managed to accrue a lot of time doing that. Mm-hmm. Carl likes Carl rolled up closer, so I rolled up so I can get closer to this mic. <coughs> You're talking about you know not flying every other Sunday. How many? How often should you fly like to to stay proficient? And like how many hours a month or a year should a, a, a private pilot just try to try to fly to keep up the skills? Well, the um, I don't think there's necessarily a set uh, hours of of, of um, or anything like that. The regulations actually has you doing a certain amount of flying uh, in the 90-day period. You know, you, you need to have three takeoff and landings. Uh, if you're going to be flying at night, you need to be able to be current in night flying. And by that, it's like if you're a private pilot and you haven't flown at night in over 90 days, you need to have your instructor come with you and, and do a couple, of three takeoff and landings if you're going to carry passengers that kind of stuff. So um, uh, and the FAA doesn't necessarily get into that because they already have it regulated to the point to where you're supposed to follow these rules, but it's probably, it's a high probability there's a lot of people out there that are not following the rules to the, to the T, you know, so. What would you recommend? <coughs> I mean, just, you don't want to set, like, I probably, should I fly twice a week, once a week, to kind of just stay up if I was going to do that? Probably once a week would be good once you have your skill levels to where they need to be. Uh, I, I give you, a, for instance, when I started flying, I started flying in 1967, thereabouts. And I was working at a roller rink, making like $15 a weekend, <laughs> playing for a motorcycle note and, uh, <laughs> and, and having money to go out on a date, you know, and go to McDonald's for $5 we could eat really good there and then go to the movie <laughs> but $15 a week didn't really accrue a lot of money so and at the same time I was flying trying to fly so um if I had enough money at the end of the month um I could scrape up you know $30 to go fly an airplane for an hour's worth of flying basically um but sometimes it would take me a couple of three weeks four weeks so whatever skills I had learned the last time I flew, I had to go back and revisit those, especially when you're trying to land the airplane, trying to figure out how to land, how to be comfortable. So it, it took me a while. Um, I started in, like I said, some, sometime around 67, and I didn't get my private pilot license until 1970, April 1970. So it was a long period of time there that I didn't do much or anything. Uh, just because I wasn't, I could have cut it off or got it done. Uh, probably if I had the money, probably in six months, you could get the private pilot license flying every day, at least one, two hours a day. Um, not more than that, probably because some people have a different tolerance of, uh, how much can they tolerate that? And not every day you're going to have perfect weather anyway. So, um, 
if you're a pilot and you own an airplane uh, and you can afford it, and I say, if you can go fly once a week, that'll be good. It'd be good for you to build your skills and go out there and, and deliberately practice the skills that you feel that you need to work on and exercising the machine, keeping the engine running, keeping the oils, the oil, pre the oil, the moisture in the oil, keep it from corroding inside the engine and all those things. All those things are crucial factors. Is I think it's probably uh, true that the more you use the airplane, the more reliable it actually is, up to a certain degree. When you start flying the airplane, it just parks. Next time you go out there and fly it, and I'm, when I say park, I mean if, you, if it stays out on the ramp for a month, two months, and then you show up and you want to go fly it, you're probably going to have a dead battery. Uh, your radius may not work quite the way you think they should. You may have an engine oil leak. You may have a low tire. You know, it just might be a flat tire, maybe a, an oleo, and the landing gear may be just flat. So a lot of those things tend to go away when you stay current mm -hmm. and flying, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's just like, like your car, you know, if you just parked it. Yeah. No guarantees that a month later you're going to get out there and run, you know. The, the fuel may get a little oxidized, mm -hmm. I guess, or, you know, lose some of that zip out of the fuel. You How know? much does it cost now to rent a plane and fly it for an hour? <laughs> You know, when I started flying, um, it was $16 for a brand new airplane, and that typically included the instructor, and it was wow. a Cherokee, you know. 16 bucks. That, that was way back when. Um, I hear now, it, it, depending on the machine, if it's a new airplane, newer airplane, it could cost you as much as $150 an hour. Wow. Uh, the local guy here in town <laughs> that I know of, he's got a little flight school, he's got a little airplane like mine. He instructs out of it, and I think he says he charges $90 an hour, hmm. whether he is with the airplane or not. Yeah, I heard you mention a second ago you scraped here 30 bucks and then go flying, and I was like, surely it's a lot more now. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, everything has escalated. I remember yeah. in, in 67, I was driving a motorcycle. That was my means of transportation. Um, I was paying, uh, if I remember correctly, it's like... 37 cents a gallon for a premium gasoline. Wow. 37 Fuel was cents. cheap then, you yeah. know. Um, <clears throat> Avgas today is uh, $5 a gallon. Really? You know, you go put 50 gallons in this airplane, I mean, 49 gallons, I think, is what it holds. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a Not cheap. chunk of change. And yeah. every time you're running that engine, it's sucking fuel out of the tanks, right? right. So it's money going to waste. <laughs> right. <laughs> What's the, flying. what's the range on that plane? Comfortably, on 49 gallons. Comfortably, it's around uh, about three hours. Oh, three wow. hours doing okay. about 130, depending on where the wind is, whether you got a tailwind <laughs> or a headwind. If you got a headwind and it's a pretty stiff, then it might take you forever to get where you're going. So yeah. <laughs> your range is going to be less. But I figured three, uh, three and a half hours. It's good enough. You, you're probably ready to get out. And so is that, can you, how far can you, can you get to like Dallas in three and a half hours in this plane? Yeah. Okay. With the conditions, right? right. Yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> I flew, I flew to Shreveport um, uh, last week. 
um, at 7,000 feet in the Barren, I was I had 70 knots of headwind. I mean, directly on the nose. Wow. So it took me right about an hour and 20 minutes, I think, to get there. Oh, wow. Turned around, came back. It was uh, in an hour. <clears throat> um, and this airplane that doesn't, it's not cruising very fast already. If you had a 70 knot headwind, you... <laughs> You're not. You're not. Uh, not going anywhere. You're not getting there fast. Yeah. <clears throat> and sometimes you may be, maybe even going backwards. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So you best turn around and go the other way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gotcha. Um, I wanted to uh, ask you also some about your faith, and because uh, I know just in conversation with you, you've made a couple comments, but of course it's you know it's like why would somebody fly? down to Mexico with 2,000 Bibles and hand them out and that sort of thing. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your, uh, you know, like when you started following Jesus and, and felt like discipleship was a big part of what you wanted to spend your time doing. Yeah. The, um, you know, I've always been exposed to, uh, uh, to the Word um in many ways um by the people who were supposed to take care of me and explain things to me weren't very knowledgeable about the faith or, or what they were really doing uh, so that kind of uh gave me some bad information from the beginning mm. so um i knew that in the mission field um there's probably a, a great need, not probably, there's a great need for spiritual uh, health on the people that you're going to go visit, not only on the, from, the, from the medical side, but spiritual uh, healing, you know. Um, so I always wanted to be prepared, be able to go do mission work and, and uh, be able to talk to someone about, not necessarily convert them, uh, and I'm not sure that's necessarily the right word, but uh, I like to be able to explain to them how it's been explained to me um, by my pastor. Um, and now that I've been I've been going to uh, minister training, uh, I do that on Mondays, and there's a lot of things about the uh, the Bible that I misunderstood that the people that were in charge of giving me good guidance and all that stuff failed miserably in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, and now I have, I think I have a better understanding about that. Um, so, but uh, probably close to about five years ago, uh, I made the turn um, to where I, I knew that I needed to do something better with my life than just uh, being a taker, mm -hmm. you know, so... Um, for a long time, I had been, you know, I need to be getting myself ready from the day for the day when I go ahead and uh, retire and go do mission work wherever that happens to be. So I found uh, through one of my pastors, I found uh, a minister training institute here in uh, Central, and I've been doing that now for going on two years, I think. Cool. And this been the greatest experience I've had because uh, the pastor that's teaching it is uh, he spent I think 12 years in Brazil mm. 
and he basically just uprooted his family, moved down over there. And is this this is uh, is his is that Donnie? Schaefer? Yeah, Donnie Schaefer, yeah. Okay, yeah, I know him. Okay. You know Donnie? Yeah, yeah, I do. Oh, yeah. man. Anyway. Whenever you mentioned Brazil, I, it yeah. reminded me, because I was like, I think that he went that. So, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Oh, I mean, <clears throat> best experience I ever had. Uh, the little church that he runs, um, yeah. in Central Church. I mean, it's I'm comfortable there. I really like it. I'm, I'm, I'm at home and uh, going there on Monday nights and, and uh, listening I mean, getting the lectures from him and mm -hmm. and getting a greater understanding about Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit and and discipleship and mm -hmm. what am I supposed to do in my life um, with my life, especially in my end of days life. Um, I think this is just the, uh, the the icing on the cake for me, really. You know, mm -hmm. um, and having a great mentor like him i mean it's it's just really has improved my life that's cool did that's i answer great. your question yeah yeah that's good <laughs> just wanted to hear a little bit about it um yeah because that's it it is cool that you're able to uh you know people often talk about you know tell others about jesus share your faith things like that uh but it's easy to compartmentalize different parts of your life but you being in aviation your whole life and you're now you're able to and for years you've been able to combine your faith with what you're doing day to day and then use your day-to-day -day skills that you've acquired flying and all and all of that to carry out that mission is it's really cool and yeah. you know for lack of a better word i keep saying cool for, for lack of a better word it's impactful you know and and meaningful and so it was that stuck out to me when we first started talking about you kept mentioning the missions and then uh yeah. go, you know going around and praying and you know i mean you can pray anywhere but again for lack of better word it adds a cool factor when you get to fly around and meet people that yeah. you wouldn't otherwise get to meet and talk with and share with and that sort of thing so yeah. Uh, yeah. adding that other the aviation combined with that was so anyway all that to say uh, just wanted to hear some more about it and what you're well how you arrived and what you're planning to yeah, do aviation is definitely a great vehicle to do this kind, of, this kind of stuff but it hasn't always been that way you know um yeah. and i'm still a big sinner you know just like everybody else <laughs> yeah. is you know but i mean it, it used to be like yeah man uh the pilot gets the chicks, right? <laughs> but uh, I mean, that's that's a stupid mentality, really. Of uh, course, mm -hmm. I was just an ignorant person, you know, and I still am an ignorant person in, in many respects, you know. But um, uh, when I was doing missions with Stan, it was it was great to be able to go over there and help somebody because I know there was a huge need to be able to go over there and, and, uh, to a village and, and mm -hmm. help them out. But on the flip side of that, I was uh, one of the things that, the, that they had, or Remote Area Medical always said, uh, and he said that as well, it's like, we're going to these places, but we're not going over there to evangelize. Mm -hmm. and, and I can see because a lot of those villages, they have a shaman, and uh, you don't want to go over there and tell the rest of the people that, this guy that's been there forever yeah. is giving them wrong information. <clears throat> I guess that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I always felt conflicted with is like, 
you go over there, you identify a person that has diabetes. Yeah, you give them some medicine, you give them a referral, but they're not going to get a referral to, because first of all, to go to the city to get medicines is a huge effort on their part. Mm -hmm. They can't afford it. So you go over there, you give them 30 days worth of tablets, and you leave and never go back to follow through, you know? So mm -hmm. that's on the, uh, the physical human side. But on the spiritual side, that's never going to change. Um, uh, n since I met Pastor Donnie, and uh, I've been going to school with him, and I have, I think I've gained a better understanding about really what it is that I'm supposed to do or be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe to the degree that I'm refining what I, where I'm, what my mission in life is going to be, or yes. And uh, I think that's one of uh, probably because I'm selfish, because I, I want to be saved, and I believe I am saved. Um, but I want to give back instead of just be taken like I've been. You know, if we in the business, we're always taking, always using natural resources. You're burning fuel. Mm. Listen, <laughs> the resource is going to go away one day, it looks like, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe, you know. Um, and I've been privileged, really, to be able to have been in this business for as long as I have. But I want to go and do something uh, more meaningful to my life. I want to do something that my children will remember me by. You know, like, yeah, you know, he was, he did something great for humanity. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, I went on medical missions and all that stuff. I'm not sure how great that is for humanity. I was humanity. about to say, I mean, it sounds like you've done very meaningful stuff already. You keep saying that you want to to do it, but you've been doing a lot of that meaningful stuff for a, a good while. So, yeah, perhaps on that. And then also I wanted to ask you too, uh, what is the, what is your plan the next, when are you going to retire? Are you, are you ever actually going to retire or do you just love being here so much that – that you aren't, <laughs> you know, um, um, somebody told me here just recently, you know, this is your hobby. <laughs> and actually my son-in-law <clears throat> said that, which got me thinking, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, I really enjoy being here. I enjoy being here more than anything else, really, you know, because when I'm here, I disconnect. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily during the the the, the days uh, during a week, you know, when we're functioning for business. On a day like today, Saturday, uh, if I weren't doing this, I'd be tinkering with something, mm -hmm. uh, trying to fix a piece of equipment, and that just kind of takes me to a different place, you know. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy that. Uh, that it actually, I actually relax. Um, so that's good for me. Um, I like to be re retired today. <laughs> and to me, retiring doesn't mean that uh, I'm not going to go to work anymore, that I'm just going to stay at home and watch TV and get old and get sick and die. Mm -hmm. What I want to do for, to retire is I want to be in the mission field. Uh, I want to find me a village somewhere that I can teach young kids something mm. what is that i don't know i mean but like 
if I can just touch one person and, uh, and point them in the right direction, I think they'll be worth all the effort. Mm-hmm. Um, at this time in my life, I've been, I am blessed beyond measure. Um, I don't particularly value those, those a lot of things, you know. Um, I got a lot of stuff. I got airplanes. I got a nice house and all those things. But in, in the final analysis, all those things are nice to have, but they're not required. Um, I've seen how a lot of people live, uh, you know, in, in those villages without a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that I can necessarily do that, you know, but uh, I think I could probably be relatively comfortable and be able to help when the means that I have, you know, um, just what, I, what little I manage to save, you know, life savings and mm-hmm. social security. I don't know how much longer that's going to last, but <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and don't get me wrong. I mean, uh, I love the United States, you know. Why I'm here is because, you know, the uh, the United States actually has afforded me to do this. You know, mm-hmm. um, the Lord has made it all happen for me, so that's a huge blessing. I like to go somewhere, and I don't know where that place is yet. I'm looking for it. Mm-hmm. I think it's in Guyana, and be able to bless somebody in the same way that I've been blessed. I don't know how, I mean, that's what I feel. I mean, I'm not sure what it really looks like, but it's kind of like the dream that I have. And mm-hmm. I figure when it happens, the Lord is going to make it happen. It's going to be, it's going to say, you know, this is where you are. You're right. That's what I like to do. And I figure I'll get up every day and have church or have a little school and teach a kid how to disassemble a motorcycle or how to change a light bulb and yeah. how not to stick your finger in the light in the light socket yeah. <laughs> as opposed to uh, stealing gasoline and putting them on the rag and getting high on gasoline mm-hmm. or glue or, mm-hmm. or drugs or stealing or smoking or drinking, all mm-hmm. those things. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's that sounds awesome. That's uh, like I said. It was. It was. It's been really cool to hear Don share a little bit originally about your story, and then when we talked briefly the other day to hear about your story, and uh, and then now again, I appreciate you sitting down uh, and chatting with us for. I don't even know how long it's been now, but uh, it's been pretty awesome. I, before I like, could I just wanted to make sure that. Carl didn't want to interject with it. Okay. All right. <laughs> Gerald, thank you so much. I, I, like I said a million times, thank you very much for letting us come and hang out and, and hear your story. And uh, it's inspiring story, not only because of the hard work that you have obviously put into to this, but also how you're, um, you integrate your faith into what you do every day. So thank you. Thank appreciate you. Appreciate it. It's been thank very you. fun. Thank you. Thank you for um, actually allowing me to have a voice. Of course. Um, I, I like to uh, maybe add one more thing to Please. the whole deal here is that I know there's a lot of uh, kids uh, here in the States that feel disadvantaged or uh, feel like they've been done wrong or any of those things. Um, and from my perspective, 
Um, when I came here in 1965, uh, I had a um, I had a huge bag that wasn't filled with my stuff. It was actually my mother's stuff. Um, I had some uh, underwear that were made from flower socks hmm. that uh, repurposed. Hmm. You know, I still had the uh, the flower brand across the back of my underwear, wow. and I had two of those. Wow. <laughs> I had a pair of shoes that I used for, if I polished them, I used them for uh, traveling maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, I, if I didn't use them for anything else, then I had to do chores or work. That's what I used, and I had one pair of shoes. Um, I never let that make me feel like I was underprivileged, um, but I, I knew one thing is that I could do better than that. So for any youngster out there that may be, that may listen to what I'm saying, is I just want the message would be that apply yourself, you know, and you can get somewhere, because I came from nothing. Mm-hmm. I had very little, and I got a lot, but it's all been a blessing because the good Lord has just made it happen for me. Um, so don't get discouraged. Work for it. You can make it. Perfect. What a fantastic ending to to the conversation. Appreciate that. And so GH Enterprises and Remote Area Medical is the organization. That's what, is it. Was it Remote RemoteAreaMedical.org, was that the website? Ram.org. Ram.org. And then Wings of the Spirit is the organization that you start in. And so we want to, I know we'll talk again more maybe after about how we can keep uh, kind of talking about that and pushing it out and letting more people bring the awareness up around it uh, as y'all continue doing that stuff. Yeah. Wings of the Spirit, uh, it's not a a, a one-person effort. It was... uh, a group of us that really came up with it, you mm-hmm. know. So uh, I just don't want that go just like making it look like I'm the only one right. that did that. Cool. No, no, no. It's uh, like I said, Ryan Williams is a very key person to this organization, and and I mean I value him immensely, um, and he could be my son actually. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much, Gerald. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. Yes, thanks, Carl. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed hearing Gerald talk about his life and career and plans and missions that he's flown. Uh, It was a great chat. Gerald, thank you again for hanging out with me and letting me come hang out in your hangar. And thank you to our unofficial but official slash unofficial sponsor, GH Enterprises, if you have an airplane or know someone who has an airplane that needs maintenance of any kind at the Baton Rouge Airport or for any planes in the general area, give Gerald a call. Uh, He is, as you've heard, he's got plenty of experience and knows what he's doing uh, and is the expert in the area. So give him a call if you need any maintenance uh, or related things with your aircraft. And of course, if you want to learn more about some of the remote area medical missions, or Gerald's more personal with, again, some other folks, uh, his more personal missions, Wings of the Spirit. You can Google those things, or you can message me, and I will connect you with him if you'd like to get involved or learn more about those. Thanks again, Gerald. 
Really, really had a lot of fun doing this. Uh, looking forward to maybe taking a flight soon. Uh, that's going to be epic. And thank you again for downloading this episode of my podcast. I am always thankful that you take time out of your day to listen to these, and I hope you enjoy them as much as I do. See you in the next one. Mm-hmm.